0: Did you know that passports are a relatively new concept? The passport system that we know and use today was created in the aftermath of World War I. Before the war, people moved relatively freely across the planet. At the turn of the last century, immigrants who arrived in the US passed through Ellis Island, where they had a disease check, were asked some questions, and then in most cases, were just allowed to enter the US and travel onward. But fast forward to today, And we have a complicated system of entry and exit requirements, visas, and modern passports that use technology like microchips, biometric photos, and barcodes to confirm the holder's identity. The thing is, a passport isn't just a symbol of your national identity. For some around the world, it represents oppression, and for others, it's a symbol of privilege. Today on Alpaca My Bags, we're exploring the history of passports and why, when you look below the surface, passports have a problematic role in controlling who has the privilege and the ease of moving around the world. Here to discuss is Kay Kingsman. Kay is the blogger behind The Awkward Traveler, and she's a published fiction writer. Kay also leads the Global Dreamers Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to making international travel more accessible by sponsoring the costs of a new passport for US and Canadian citizens. But before we dive in, Katie, I wanted to ask do you remember getting your first passport? I actually do.
1: It's not like a crazy story or anything, but to provide you a little bit of context, I grew up very much a kid who was a rule follower. So when I got my very first passport, I remember my dad sitting down with me at the dining table and like showing me where I had to sign. And I just remember the process of signing my passport for the first time, feeling extremely intimidating because I knew that this was sort of like my one and only passport. And if I screwed up my signature as like a, what, eight-year-old child, that like I would ruin the whole thing and then I would never be allowed to travel. And I was so, so nervous. And then also it revolved around a conversation that, I had to have with my dad about what even is my signature as an eight-year-old. So we practiced it over and over and over on a piece of paper and then traced it in pencil onto the the passport (laughs) and then went over it again in ink. So I just remember it being a very intimidating situation getting my first passport. And now I feel like people
0: lose passports and it's fine. Like... (laughs) It's funny, too, because in my experience, at least, I've never seen an immigration officer really look at the signature. No. Our signatures are meaningless now. (laughs) Well, have I ever told you about when I almost lost my passport? No, you have not. (laughs) (laughs) It was in Cuba. I was there backpacking around with Rashid, who's been on the podcast. He was on the show in season one. So if you want to go back and listen about our adventures in Cuba, that episode is an early one. But yeah, this is where I learned that when you're traveling, it's important to do the check. And it's a little bit different than the check at home. You know how people are like keys, phone, wallet. When you're traveling, you have to add passport. It's like passport, keys, phone, wallet. And normally I was pretty good about that. But here's where my crucial mistake was. So we were staying in a casa particular, which is really common in Cuba. It's basically a homestay. So generally you're just staying in a small room that's part of a family's home. And they feed you and you share a bathroom. And it's very like communal living. I have it etched into my brain not to lose my passport. So I always hide it, especially if I'm staying in like a communal space. So I hid it in my pillow, which no. is very, that's kind of like a really like basic place to hide a passport. It's kind of the place where someone would expect you to hide something. So I'd <laughs> hidden it in my pillow, promptly forgot that it was there we woke up, we had to join this car share to go. We were in Trinidad and we were going to San Fuegos, which is about a two-hour drive. And we decided to hop in a car share. So we were hopping in a vehicle with a bunch of other people and we were all going to go together in this car to San Fuegos. Rashid and I wake up a little hungover and like pull our things together, get in the car. We're like an hour into the drive when I realized I don't have my passport and I will never forget the embarrassment of having to turn to Rashid and say Rashid. I left my passport in Trinidad, and then him having to explain because his Spanish was much better than me, mine, and everyone <laughs> in the car was Cuban, and him <laughs> having to explain in terrible broken Spanish how important it was that we go back, I felt so bad because everyone in this car, everyone has lives, They're, they were just regular Cubans, like going about about their daily life, we all had to turn around and drive back. And it was funny because when we pulled up to the casa, we always called them the casa mama. So the casa mama would always be the mom in the family. And this casa mama had like a little baby who was so adorable. And she comes out immediately like rocking the baby with my passport and (laughs) laughing. (laughs) And she told us, she was like, oh, I knew you'd be back for this.
1: (laughs) Oh, That's what a casa mama is for.
0: Exactly.
1: Also, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before, but there was also the time when we were in Florida recently in 2020. And Mark and I went to Disney and we're excited to go to the new Star Wars world and try all the new Star Wars cocktails. And we get there and we got one drink somewhere. We showed our Canadian ID and it was fine. And then we go to get another drink somewhere else. And they're like, we need a second piece of ID and it needs to be a photo ID. And that means like the only other option for us was our passport. And I was like, listen, listen. We're at a theme park right now. There's no way I'm bringing my passport to a place like this. Like this is such a, we're going on roller coasters. Like for all I know, my passport can just fly out of my fanny pack at any time today and it's gone forever. So what person is bringing their passport to Disney World. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, long story short, we hopped in a taxi and went back to the hotel,
0: grabbed our passports and came back. Whoa. So this is a good hack. I don't know if it would have worked in this scenario, but I always carry at least two photocopies of my passport whenever I yeah. travel anywhere. And I always make sure I have one on me when I'm out and about like during the day. Just in case someone asks, then you can say, well, I have a, I have this copy of it. Well, they the did say passport.
1: that they would accept uh, a photo of the passport. So if I just had a mm-hmm. photo of my passport on, our, on my phone, I would have gotten away with it. And oddly enough, I had a picture of Mark's passport on my phone, but oh. not mine. Because yeah. who did I think would lose their passport? Not
0: me. <laughs> but also photocopy because – The thing about, so my photocopy tactic is always keep one photocopy on me and one photocopy somewhere random in my luggage, because then if like the worst scenario possible happens and you get your wallet, passport, like everything, phone, everything taken, at least you have this one single photocopy. That's a hot tip. Thanks for sharing. It's all about the multiple copies in random places. Yeah. (laughs) Put them all over the place. I've never needed to use any of these photocopies, but they are. (laughs) But you might. They are useful.
1: (laughs) You might.
0: Hey, Kay, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you. Thanks for having me. I remember getting my first passport. I was 16 and I needed one because my parents were sending me to the Netherlands to stay with some family there. Other than some travels my parents did with me when I was a baby, this was going to be my first time out of Canada. I remember how exciting it was to receive it in the mail. My mom sat down with me, showing me where to sign it, and we flipped through all the blank pages while she explained that it would be stamped when I arrived in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. So that was my first passport experience. Can you tell me about yours, Kay, about how you got your first passport? So funnily enough, I was peer pressured into getting
2: my first passport, and and not even actually by my peers. It was by a family friend. Essentially, I was in French class in high school and they were planning an international trip to France. Just preemptively, I was like, oh, we're not, my family would never be able to afford that. I'm not even going to like think about it. So I didn't even bring it up to my family really. But one day uh, we had a family friend visiting. So she was just like, hey, Kay, like, how's your French class going? And, you know, I was like, oh, it's fine. We're not going to do anything next week or next month because all of the kids are going to France. And I'm like, going to be the only one still there. She was like, well, why, why aren't you going? And I was like, ma'am, have you seen our house? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to France. And she was like, well, why not? And it wasn't until then where I really considered that I could potentially go to France. And that family friend was basically like, hey, look, I will personally pay for your passport. You just gotta figure out, you know, how to come up with the money otherwise. She paid for my passport and sent me a lot of resources for like scholarships, but for high schoolers. And I applied for them. And since no one else applied for them, I I managed to raise enough money to send myself to France. Yeah, that was kind of the story of my first passport that I never thought I would get. And it was just because of my mom's nosy coworker.
0: Have you have you spoken to her since like or did she just like go off into the ether and she's never heard about like what happened after? Now that you've <laughs> traveled so much. We actually
2: we went to Costa Rica in 2019 for my f- mom's birthday. And she's such a wild woman. <laughs> I'm glad my mom has a wild friend. But um, that is the last time I am going anywhere with her. <laughs> but I, I am immensely grateful both for her and, you know, her friendship to my mom. She's she's part of the fam.
0: Aw. I like that you brought up opportunities and scholarships especially when I was younger, that's how I managed to pull off travel as well. Like I studied abroad when I was in university and that was in large part just because I applied to like bursaries and scholarships and opportunities that were available. And it's kind of funny because I noticed a lot of people weren't aware that there were so many resources available. So this is kind of just a PSA to anyone listening. If you, especially if you're in school and you want to travel, look for those resources And um, Gabby Beckford, I'm sure you've heard of her. She's PaxLight on Instagram. She's incredible and shares so many amazing opportunities for people and even people that aren't in school. So, yeah, if you're looking for help with getting the funds to travel, look up PaxLight on Instagram. So I don't know about you, but I always keep my passports. So far in life, I've only had two, so not that's not that many, and like one of them's currently in use, <laughs> but I kept the first one. But I think I keep them because they feel really sentimental to me. I love going back to them and looking at the different stamps from different airports and the old visas that are stapled in. So I feel like they're sentimental, but they're also kind of symbolic because they tie us to a place. Like in a way, my Canadian passport makes me feel Canadian. Maybe that's a weird way of putting it, but it kind of does. And it also sort of symbolizes our freedom to go elsewhere in the world. So I wanted to ask if you feel like there's meaning wrapped up in your little book of stamps as well.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, they're quite literally like a representation of our home Mm -hmm. and like a beacon to where we come from to the world. But I also feel like it is a reminder, a good reminder of like where I've come from. And also just how incredible life can be and that you don't really know where you're going to end up or what kind of opportunities are going to allow you to go further in life. Especially when, you know, you look back at all your memories in the form of stamps and like oh yeah i remember when i went blah 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 ha, ha. even though like your your like stamp is like half dried up and it's <laughs> yeah. like you know barely stamped they didn't use enough ink yeah
0: <laughs> I recently was in Portugal. This is the only international trip I've done in the pandemic. And thankfully, I got home before Omicron broke out. Oh,
2: thank goodness. Uh,
0: like it was under the wire. But when I arrived there, the first thing I did was look in my passport because I was like, I want to see the new stamp that I have. And they didn't stamp it hard enough, so I could barely see it at all. A friend of mine told me recently, so you know when you go to like really touristic places, um, sometimes they'll have like tourism stamps that you they'll just stamp in your passport. And it's not like a, a country stamp. It's just like, I was here. And she told me that she gets them all the time. And at first I was like, oh, really? Like, you're willing to pay for that? And she was like, yeah, because when I look in my passport, it reminds me of all those places. And I actually like kind of came around to this idea. now I'm thinking, okay, I get it. So according to an annual report from 2017, 60% of Canadians have a valid passport. And as of 2017, 42% of Americans have a valid passport. I was actually really surprised by these percentages. Maybe it's like silly of me, but I really, I mean, it points to my own privilege. I really subconsciously assumed that most people have a passport. And I think that's probably because in the community I grew up in, it is very much a norm. Like you just assume everyone has one. I want to ask what you thought about these stats as well. Were you surprised or less surprised than me?
2: Well, I would say for me, I wasn't surprised just from my own experience, my own background. For example, like growing up, I didn't know anyone who traveled for leisure, much less out of the country. My mother was in the military, so she had a passport, but it was only for work. So she would tell me like, oh, I had a layover in Reykjavik, but she didn't you know, get to leave and explore. So she got like glimpses of places, but she wasn't traveling. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I guess I didn't understand the concept really of travel or even like dream about it. I just knew there were people in other countries, right? Yeah. yeah. Having excess like money to travel is one thing and money and finances itself is like a huge access barrier to travel. But like even putting that aside, There's also, especially in America, just having the time to travel. So in 2017, one in every four private industry workers in America, so that's about 80% of our workforce, they don't have any paid time off. Oh, my
0: God. So
2: literally cutting into their income. Mm -hmm. And of people who do get paid time off, most either don't have a guaranteed number of days off or it's very little the large majority of people who get paid time off, it's only valid after they've worked a year. And then after a year, then they get 10 days off, which is here the equivalent of two weeks. They might have to use it to visit the doctor. or family emergencies, if they get sick, they might have to use their paid time off for sick leave. So it just doesn't leave people a lot of time to even think about using their precious two weeks To travel, You know, back to the money side of thing, more than half of Americans, I think 54% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck are close to that. And even high earners, 40% of people who earn more than 100,000 a year, still live paycheck to paycheck. So if they have a sudden life emergency that they need to pay for their car breaks down, what have you, then they're suddenly behind on paying their bills. So both in time and finances, a lot of Americans just don't have that wiggle room for leisure travel. So
0: I get the stats. I get the passport,
2: lack thereof.
0: Yeah, and it's like, if you don't have that privilege of time and money to travel, like, why get a passport? Like, what's the point if that's not even a reality for you? And like you say, a passport is not cheap. In the U.S., they cost, from what I saw, 145 USD plus the money for your passport photos and in Canada it's about the same it's 160 Canadian dollars and then of course if you don't have the privilege of disposable income that you can put towards a passport like obviously you don't have disposable income to go towards travel itself and the time off thing like really bothers me like i really think if you are working full time like you have a human right to time off like to be working for a company or a business around the year and only have 10 working days to yourself, like I'll, n- I'll never support that. Like that needs to change. <laughs> I don't know how or when it will, but it needs to, <laughs> I worked, immediately, Yeah. Like I worked one year in my like adult working life where I had two weeks of vacation and it was awful. It was awful for my mental health. I felt like I had to like carefully use those days for like just basic life shit And when you just think about the fact that you're anchored down to a company, basically the entire year, it just, it kind of hurts. It hurts inside. So yeah, I wanted to ask, are there other barriers of access beyond the price um, when it comes to getting yourself a passport?
2: Yeah, just price point aside, I feel like getting a passport, at least in America, isn't even like convenient. Like I remember when I had to get my passport in high school for France, Uh, My mom couldn't take work off, so I had to find someone who could drive me on a weekday to go to the, um, I think I had to go to the, I forgot how, or the post office, something. I even forgot how to do it. But you have to, you know, take time off. You have to make an appointment. You have to have all your documentation. So, like, you need to print, like, you have to print things out in 2021. You know, you have to, if you... applying for your child and you're no longer with that child's other parent, you have to like get a notarized approval from the other parent. And it's just like literally one of the most annoying processes that doesn't even have to be that annoying. Like it's almost as bad as going to the DMV. So it's literally like the sloth scene from Zootopia. (laughs) And it's like, why do we need to do this still? Why isn't it just online applications you know if getting a passport was as convenient as like getting registered to vote like if there was like an online portal that you can just you know fill out the paperwork pay your fee and then it would pop up in the mail then it would be so much like we have phones we can take pictures why can't we just take a cute selfie with good lighting so true and like have it delivered yeah another barrier to getting a passport aside from price would just be knowledge of what travel could be like. I remember my first like adult working job there was a guy who worked there and I remember him saying that he would never like he has no interest in traveling and that was kind of when I just started getting more interested in seeing other places and like realizing There were ways to do it financially that were good for me. (laughs) And he was like, well, everything I like to do is here. He was someone who liked to, you know, be out in nature and go hiking and hunting and I don't know, other outdoor stuff, I guess. In my head, I was like, well, you can do all that stuff in other places. And I think he had a vision of travel as being, you know, you have to go to the beach or you have to like go to museums or you have to go to these the best 10 attractions and blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that travel can be catered to their own interest. It doesn't have to be how everyone else travels. You know, maybe if travel was presented to him in a way that, hey, Canada has a ton of great lakes. Look at these mountains in China or whatever. He would maybe be like, oh, I'd love to see those mountains. You know, sometimes travel isn't showcased in in diverse ways to inspire people with different interests to travel. So
0: I feel like you're almost saying it's something that many of us learn or like discover through exposure or through our communities. Because when I think about it, growing up, my family didn't travel like my parents didn't have money to travel with three kids abroad. So we only ever traveled around to Canada but my parents had traveled a lot before they had us. And growing up, my mom would always tell us stories about their travels across Asia and India. And growing up listening to those stories really encouraged my siblings and I to all be interested in doing it on our own. And I guess if you don't grow up in a household or a community where that's like an active conversation, you would just never know that there is an opportunity out there for you to explore the world or like and explore it in a way that, works for you and that you want and will enjoy
2: right in a way that would make it worth the passport fee and the hassle to get it and you know using your days off
0: to travel yeah yeah absolutely Katie, as you know, travel for me doesn't always go according to plan.
1: Oh, I am well aware. I've heard enough stories on this podcast to know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels.
0: Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more as your go-to. And they've actually helped me out of a super scary situation before. When I ended up in hospital in Australia late at night, World Nomads provided me with emergency assistance so I could get the help I needed and carry on with my trip. World Nomads policies are simple and flexible. They cover over 150 adventure activities, including higher risk activities like scuba diving and trekking. Benefits limit conditions and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get your travel insurance quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So financial accessibility is one angle to the passport privilege discussion. But I think another important part of the discussion is the power of a passport, um, which differs depending on what nation your passport is from. Um, So for example, my Canadian passport gives me entry into 100 countries visa-free, and then 44 others allow visa on arrival. Just an FYI, I don't know if this data or like information is super accurate right now because the pandemic is kind of like throwing things for a loop. Um, but that's what it was pre-pandemic. And this means that in many cases, I can just go to a country without having to apply for a visa in advance. So with a Canadian passport, you don't have to spend a ton of money and time on a visa process. For the sake of an example, if you compare this to a Vietnamese passport, you can really see the privilege because with a Vietnamese passport, you can enter just 11 countries visa-free and 40 others with visa on arrival. So I guess to summarize, um, there's the financial accessibility piece, but there's also the power of a specific passport that contributes to passport privilege. You had mentioned to me that you have experienced visa woes, which I think speaks to this aspect of passport privilege. So could you tell us about these visa woes? But actually, before you dive in, maybe explain what a visa is um, and when and why travelers need them.
2: Okay, let's start with like what a passport is, what a visa is, and how they differ from each other. But like, spoiler, you can thank Europe for this. Ooh. In the simplest of terms... A passport is a representation of your citizenship and is used to record your coming and going around the world because, like, you know, we're all being monitored whether we like it or not. And a visa can be thought of as an add-on to your passport because sometimes additional requirements are needed for entries to other countries. But why are there additional requirements for some countries and why, does, why do the requirements differ depending on your passport or your citizenship? So I thought it was interesting that up until the 20th century or so, globally, countries didn't care about who was coming into their country. Like they were more concerned about people leaving because in that time, like 16th to the 18th century, the idea of, you know, having your residents and citizens in your country That made them an important economic resource because people work jobs, they service the community, they produce sellable exports, so money. So having more people in your country, even like people immigrating in, people just traveling, just being in your country was a good thing. Like the more the merrier, like literally they did (laughs) not care. There was literally no passport. There was no any kind of documentation or like limits to that. But, uh, you know, World War I changed everything. And the freedom of movement and the availability to just go where you wanted to essentially halted, especially in Europe. Yeah, so, <laughs> so in 1914, the major warring states were France, Germany, and Italy. And they were the first ones to make a passport or what we would consider a passport today. And they made passports and needing one to enter the country mandatory. And after they did that, most of Europe rapidly followed, even neutral countries like Spain, Denmark, Switzerland. And then at the end of World War I, during the Treaty of Versailles 1919, the Treaty of Versailles required that members of the UN needed to commit to maintaining freedoms of communications and transits. So passports. So the idea of having a passport by then was very Widespread globally, even the countries that were not involved are directly involved in World War One. And during the first, like passport-specific conference in 1920, all the participants, aka the members of the UN, agreed to establish a uniform international passport that would all function the same. And that's how we ended up with our current little, little nifty travel books. <laughs> so basically, everyone agreed, but since tensions were still high between certain countries after world war 1 they compromised in creating something called a visa or additional entry requirements so the visa compromise left it open to each country based on like vague diplomatic relations mm. they had the ability to limit which passport holders could come into their country so, for example, if your country was not on good terms with another country, they could be like, mm, "We don't want citizens from that country coming because, like, that's national security." <laughs> and that, <laughs> and that's how, and that's even today how sudden travel bans happen so fast. I think it's so interesting that there were people in the UN who opposed passports at all up until 1963 because it's literally it literally goes against the commitment to freedom of travel. That's the global economy for you. But moving back to today, sorry, you can look up online which countries require visas um, depending on what passport or citizenship you have. So if you do need a visa, it will either be a visa you need to apply for in advance, or a visa on arrival. Some requirements for the visa may be just filling out a quick form that states your intention on being in the country, which will probably be leisure or travel. It might have an age requirement depending on where you come from, proof of employment, or even receipts from your bank account. It really
0: just depends on where you come from. When you describe it that way, it actually kind of sounds kind of disturbing to me because it's it can almost be used as like a tool of oppression. Oh, it is. <laughs> and also just thinking like from personal experience, I, I have a really good friend who's Russian. And when we lived in the Netherlands together, we wanted to travel together and we could not go to some countries around the EU, because she said, it's too hard for me to apply for a visa. She could apply for a visa. There wasn't a ban. But it was such a headache that she didn't want to because it's not worth the time and effort just to get a denial because sometimes that would happen. Like she had applied to go to the UK and they just, after all this paperwork, just said, eh, no. And then just thinking about her as my friend, it's like, why wouldn't she be allowed to go? It's Extremely disturbing. And
2: I think around the formation of like, having global passports accepted around the world, it was also when countries started to care more about immigration. So the passport conference in Paris was in 1920. And in 1924, that's when the US had their Immigration Exclusion Act, which basically super limited Um, the amount of people who could immigrate into the U.S., especially people who weren't from Western Europe. And in fact, it completely um, excluded anyone from any Asian country, I think except Japan and the Philippines. And even then, I think a couple years later, they excluded Japan. And at the time, we were pretty good diplomatically with Japan. So Japan was like, bro, like, what the heck? Like, you know, but the U.S. are like,
0: uh, what are you to about it? <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> the layers of oppression are pretty multifaceted when it comes to passports and immigration.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just like recently, if anyone's looking at the news, the Canadian government very horribly created a travel ban against a lot of African nations coming to Canada because of Omicron. And it's like they were criticized, as they should be, and they've lifted the ban now because it's like, omicron is already here that's just that's just a racist travel ban like when it comes down to it it's not going to change anything about the state of the pandemic and also like can we talk about vaccine inequity like if there were more vaccines available in other regions of the world we wouldn't be having these variants and like having this argument about travel bans so it's still happening like even today you tell us about your first visa experience? I'm going to just be outright honest about it. Like the first time I had to apply for a visa, it was on arrival and I'm glad it was on arrival because I was stupid. Like I didn't know I needed one. So yeah, when I think about it now, it's like not, it's not natural to think that you're going to have to like fill out another form to enter a country. So on that note, could you tell us about your first visa experience? (laughs) Sure. So my first visa experience actually
2: happened pretty early-ish in my travel life, I suppose. It was when I was going to Cuba, and I think it was a year or two after um, Americans were legally allowed to go to Cuba on a flight from the U.S. When I bought the flight, there was like a little note that was like, don't forget to get your visa. And I was like... Excuse me, ma'am. What the heck is a visa? So after I did some internet digging, it was like this form that I had to fill out and I had to like pay for it. I either had to pay online or I could pay at the airport. And I was like, this literally looks like a scam.
0: In the end, it was legit, but I... It was. I thought the (laughs) twist was going to be that it was a scam because I've heard of that being a thing, like people being scammed buying like fake visas online. Yeah,
2: and that's what I was scared of because I was like, "This, there's no way I have to pay additional fees to go to another place. You can see my American privilege working there. (laughs) Yeah. But that was my first visa experience. And... In hindsight, it's not the worst because I didn't really need any documentation compared to, oh gosh, my China visa. (gasps) For Americans, you have to apply to get a visa to go to China, but you have to go to the emissary. Like, you have to be in person. Mm. But there are only five Chinese emissaries in America, and you have to go to the one that's closest to you, which, I mean, in theory makes sense. But the U.S. is huge. So I live in Portland, Oregon, which is in the northwest corner of the country. And my closest embassy for China is in San Francisco, which is about a 10-hour drive. That's like a trip in itself just to go apply for the visa. Right. But there is an embassy in Los Angeles where my family is from. But I can't go to that one because it's not the closest one to me. Oh. So you can get your Chinese visa through like an agency. Even that is expensive. So it's like, oh, do I pay to go to San Francisco myself, or do I pay this agency? I ended up doing the agency just so I wouldn't have to take time off. Mm. It was almost three hundred dollars U.S. dollars. I had to, you know, give them a bunch of paperwork. I had to send in my current passport, which is like, oh my god, am I getting scammed? Yeah, (laughs) like. Every time I apply for a visa I just feel like I'm getting scammed because honestly
0: <laughs> it is a scam. But <laughs> it's funny that you say it feels like a scam because it is a scam, but it honestly does feel like a scam and I think part of it is that every visa I've ever applied for the process has not been the same. It's always a different process and so you feel so like disoriented that you just like don't know if it's real and I just think about applying for our visas to India. It was like the longest form, took us like two hours to do this form. They wanted to know, and like my partner and I had been traveling in Asia for like seven months, and they wanted to know everywhere we had been in the last year. So we're like going through our emails, like looking at like hostile bookings to figure out where exactly we've been for the last six months of traveling. <laughs> Submit it, we're sitting there for two days, like, "Oh my gosh, is it going to get approved? Is it going to get approved? It gets approved. Then when we land in India, we're freaking out like, okay, like we have to make sure we have all our answers ready to go, like come off as like respectable people to like be approved to come in, and we go up to the the guy, I don't know, the guy at the desk, and we hand him all this paperwork that we've printed, and he looks at it, like scans it, and just goes, stamp. And hands it to us. Not a word, not a word. You're in the country. And like we had spent so long catastrophizing about whether we would like get into India or not. And it just, we just cruised right through. You never know with these situations. So Kay, you mentioned that you actually one time ran into an issue with immigration officers because they didn't believe that you were American. Do you want to share a bit about that experience? Sure. Sure. Just so I don't get banned
2: from entering that country again. (laughs) I won't say which country it was. I was doing a land border crossing. So I was with my partner who is also American. um, And he went through fine. But then I tried to go through and they like looked at my passport. And granted, my passport picture is very like, it's not a cute (laughs) picture. So usually when people do like a second look through, I'm like very much cuter in person. But then they like started flipping through the pages. He looked back at me and he was like, is this your passport? Like he showed it to me and he's like, you're saying this is you. And I was like, yes. Is this like a weird intimidation tactic? But then he like flipped through the stamps again. And he was like, so you're American. You were born in the US. And I was like, yes. And he's like, what city? Like, what are your parents' names? and i was like um sir i'm pretty sure that's not not in the passport but um okay and then he didn't say anything he just got up and left with my passport and then another agent came and was like you need to come in this room so they took me into the separate sitting area without my passport and then they just closed the door and i was just in there alone someone else like maybe 10 minutes later came in and started asking me the same questions they were like what's your name where were you born where were your parents born like one question that was really weird the agent was like how long has your family been in america and i was like well you see in america there was this thing where they enslaved a bunch of people because he was like when did your family immigrate to america and I was like, my family never immigrated to America. I think they were brought there unwillingly. Um, I I was like kind of like joking a little bit, but I was also <laughs> like scared. <laughs> so then they left the room again. So then my partner, he was like trying to like get a look and he was like, what's going on? And I was like, I'm being soft detained, I guess. They kept that up for four hours. So, Whoa. yeah, so I was in that room and just like in the building for four hours, it was just a weird feeling that I didn't look American or I looked suspicious enough to seem like I had stolen a passport or I was trying to do something fishy. It really kind of invalidates your passport and like your citizenship just because
0: you don't match that. Yeah, I'm sure it messes with like your concept of identity in a way. So what happened when they finally released you? What was the experience like? And how did they like tell you? And did they give you any explanation as to why they had suddenly decided you were the person in your photo?
2: Yeah. So after like four hours of just like sitting in confusion and silence, so two agents came back in. One was holding my passport and he literally just handed it to me and said, it's stamped. And then they both left the room. (laughs)
0: Like no explanation. You know, sometimes I wonder about this because in Canada, I'm not sure about the US, but in Canada now, they give you a 10-year passport. And when I look at the photo of me, which is now I think four years old, I don't really look like that person anymore. I wonder if people are trained on how to like cross compare a photo in a passport that could be 10 years old to like a person's current face. It's not easy.
2: Well, the passport... I have now, I was like, I got it in undergrad or whatever. It was like, I don't know, seven years ago. And I was like, not that cute. And I don't think it does me justice.
0: So I'm like, (laughs) I don't think you can like base your biases on that picture. I think this is universal though. No one has a nice passport photo. It just seems like it's impossible. So especially when I was traveling around Asia, I had to apply for a lot of visas. And most of the time they were on arrival, but there were a couple times that I had to apply in advance. And although I would get like the nervousness, logically I always knew that they would be approved. Like I never had genuine fear that I would be rejected and like stranded in an airport. And again, this is demonstrating the privilege of not just my passport, but my identity. And I did a quick Google search and tons of articles came up covering visa stress, which is basically the stress that people feel when in a visa application process. And you and I have both described like the stress to degree. It arises particularly in people who are applying so that they can immigrate, which is a very different kind of visa application than if you're just going to like leisure travel. So what has your experience been like in applying for visas in advance in terms of like the stress? Do you always feel stressed or at other times do you feel like, okay, there's no need to worry. It's just like got to sign this and send it in and we're good to go. I've had
2: very similar experiences as you, as in, you know, very low logical concern. Honestly, it's never actually crossed my mind that I would get rejected if I did get rejected, it would be because I misspelled something or I didn't provide enough information. Mm -hmm. I actually first heard about visa stress and even just passport privilege from someone who would eventually become one of my really good friends, Anisha from Expat Panda. She wrote a blog post about her struggles and frustrations about being an expat with a South African passport and the visa stress that goes into it and even getting jobs. Because although she speaks English fluently as a first language, the fact that she has a South African passport, she's less likely to get chosen for English-speaking jobs, even though she speaks perfect English. But just the fact that she has a South African passport makes it, you know, not only harder for her to travel but also to live and work as an expat in other countries. So hearing about her experiences really opened my eyes to my own passport privilege.
0: No, like I I fully agree. And and that's something I've noticed too, just in talking to friends of mine that don't have the same amount of passport privilege that I do. It really opens your eyes to like, okay, my little fear that I'm going to misspell my name or like forget to say that I had been in this country a year ago. Like that really doesn't compare to actual visa stress, which is like stress about whether or not you'll actually be accepted to enter a country. And it's not only just for like vacation. It's for like serious things like immigration and work and family. But yeah, this discussion gets me thinking about how you often hear the narrative that travel is something that everybody should do, that you should travel to discover yourself and for self-care and everyone should take that gap year and live abroad. I read a really interesting article on Medium by writer Angela Fan. Where she makes a really good point about these kinds of statements, she says, Although the advice is well-intentioned, it's inherently flawed because it makes the assumption that someone can just pack their bags and leave irrespective of money. There are significant barriers and structures in place that limit, limit someone's mobility, such as a passport. Because of this, it contributes to the Western world's domination of travel narratives, which further reinforces the unequal structures in place for traveling. So I wanted to bring this up because you've been an established travel blogger now for years. So I know that you know the ins and outs of blogging. And in observing the travel blogging world, I wanted to ask if you find that Western perspectives tend to dominate travel narratives. A hundred percent. American, Canadian and people from the UK, I
2: think their perspective dominates the travel industry. A large part of it is language privilege too. English speaking bloggers in general have more access to have their voice on the global stage than other bloggers. So even if I traveled the same as someone from Ecuador, we traveled the same. We both had blog pages I would probably be more likely to be invited to speak on, I don't know, top tips for travelers just because I spoke English if the other person didn't. Mm. The American perspective of race and race theory plays a lot into the, like the diversity trend that is happening in the travel industry. Especially in America, diversity boils down to race, or at least a lot of people think of diversity as just race and not gender, income, and accessibility differences. So you could have, you know, a rainbow of people talking, but they all come from the same socioeconomic background. And it's not exactly relatable to everyone. Right.
0: Yeah. So like, we almost need more like an intersectional approach to travel blogging. I feel like the pandemic actually gave some of us Canadians and Americans a taste of what it's like to have less passport privilege. For example, for a solid year, the border between Canada and the U.S. was shut. I recently traveled for the first time internationally. And in traveling, I just noticed like a couple things about travel during this time that like made the privilege more to be traveling. Like for example, I noticed like It costs more to travel because I was paying for things to like mitigate risk. I booked Airbnbs private versus staying in hostels. Normally I would always stay in a hostel, but I was like, pandemic, I'm going to stay in Airbnbs. It required more flexibility and time because I had to factor in like, okay, what if I actually do get COVID abroad? I'm going to be stuck here in quarantine, which will cost me money. And like, what do I do about work? So I had to think about like that, which was a privilege. And it's easier if you're vaccinated, which brings up issues of vaccine equity. And then also the the passport privilege part, because right now you can't travel to any country like you used to be able to on a Canadian passport. But yeah, I did find that traveling internationally was just in general more complicated. Like as a Canadian, you have to show like your vaccine passport as well as your negative test. And then coming back to Canada was similarly complicated. It felt like more of a privilege to be traveling just because I knew that not everyone had like the time, money and resources to pull off that kind of trip safely. Especially
2: with um, the U S now has um, a requirement where you have to have a negative PCR test coming back to the U S, even though you don't need one to leave, but it's like a hefty chunk of cash that you wouldn't have had to pay before. It does create like a vaccine disparity in travel because there are still countries that don't have enough vaccines for their own citizens. Like, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but, you know, it is a privilege to be vaccinated and have access, easy, free access to vaccines that other
0: countries still don't have. Oh, it's so frustrating. But it's true. It's like vaccines now are kind of another aspect of like, if your passport is a privilege that like gains you entrance into other countries. Vaccines are too to a degree because there are some countries that won't allow you to enter unless you are vaccinated. I'm pretty sure in Canada now you can't enter Canada unless you're fully vaccinated. And so that means like if you're from a region of the world where you don't have vaccine access, that is another closed door. Man, like I could just talk forever about this because the the layers just go on and on and on forever. One thing I keep
2: seeing and hearing both from bloggers and like major travel publications is that, you know, travel is back. People are traveling more than ever. Things are back to normal. Pack your bags. It's time to go. But it's like, for who?
0: Like, that's not true for most of the world. Yeah. I keep seeing people using the word post-pandemic. It's time to do your post-pandemic travels. And it's like, we're not post-pandemic. We're like years away from that. So it's still it's still pandemic travel. Calling it post-pandemic travel like does not make sense. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up by you telling us about your registered nonprofit, the Global Dreamers Foundation. Yay.
2: Yeah. So the Global Dreamers Foundation is something I had an idea for a couple years ago. And back when I first started to get approached for travel brands, just getting money for travel, which I never planned to do and is still very unexpected for me. It felt unreal that I was getting paid to travel when just like a few years ago, I could barely pay to live. So it kind of made me revisit that time when I was in high school and my mom's coworker sponsored my first passport it made me realize that I wanted to give back to people in the same way and kind of pay it forward. So I wanted to make a kind of a scholarship type thing that would sponsor the passport costs for Canadians and Americans, mostly because the process is familiar to me. But we did have someone get their passport this year. Oh. Our first start to finish. So that was really heartwarming. And she does not have plans for immediate travel, but she is starting to plan. And that in itself is like worth everything.
0: I was just going to say it's really cute because even if – this, this person that you got her first passport for isn't traveling in the near future. It's like receiving that first passport just opened like a door of opportunity. So now she can actually think about planning a trip. So it's kind of symbolic to have your first passport because it, it means travel can be a reality in your future. Right. Okay. Well, Okay. thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really awesome convo. I learned a lot. And before we let you go, can you tell us where our listeners can find and follow you? I mean, it's been a pleasure. You guys can all follow me on my
2: website, www.theawkwardtraveler.com. And that's Traveler with two L's because um, someone else took the one with one L. The Awkward Traveler at Instagram. Spoiler, I'll be back in January. (gasps) That's where you can find me.
0: Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to Alpaca Your Bags safely and soon.